everybody. Welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and thanks for stopping by and checking out the pod. We are um, going to continue talking about the church today, and the next few episodes will be um, reflections on uh, some of the images used in the New Testament to talk about the church, of what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be um, the body of Christ, what it means to be, and so on and so on, uh, as the images go. And uh, I don't have all of them mapped out yet, but we'll get there. Um, But if you haven't first um, listened to my just previous episode with Pastor Brian Zond, uh, you should go do that. We had just an absolute wonderful conversation, absolutely wonderful conversation. And we talked about a bunch of different things about uh, being a pastor and um, the relationship between a pastor and the church. And um, make sure you listen through all the way to the end. Towards the end of our our talk, um, I asked him, what's one thing that you as a pastor uh, wish the average congregant knew about being a pastor. And he gave me um, a very, very honest, a very, very raw, very transparent answer that uh, I honestly was not uh, really ex- expecting. And it was, I, I've, I've listened to Pastor Brian uh, more times than I can count. I've read everything that he's ever written. And that was as honest and as vulnerable as I've ever heard him. And so that was a real treat to be able to just kind of share that moment uh, with him and uh, and then to be able to, to present that to you guys. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure you go back and do that. I think you'll enjoy it. But today I want to talk about um, one of the images, and I think one of the uh, primary images used of the church in in the, uh, the New Testament. And um, we're going to kind of weave it together back into its roots in the Old Testament. But we're going to end actually in, I think, a kind of surprising place for most people, a place that I don't think, in one of Paul's letters, that I don't think many of us think about when we think about the church. And so uh, I want to talk about the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump a couple of words together here, uh, and I want to look at the image of a family, or the familial language given in the New Testament. Obviously, you have all of the brothers and sister references. Um, we have res- references of, of adoption, of being sons, of being a family. And all of these um, descriptions are kind of getting at the same reality. And that would be that we are, uh, as believers, we are part of the family of God, that we uh, have a father. I mean, this is why we open the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that our Lord gave us Himself, our Father, right? It's familial language. And so at the very core, at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, and therefore what it means to be not just an individual Christian, but to be the church as a collective is wrapped up in this idea that we are family, uh, that we have a father, that Jesus is our brother, and that we are the first brother among 
among us, the firstborn among us, uh, and that we are brothers and sisters. And, and there's all kinds of threads in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that we could that we could pull from. I mean, all kinds of it's, it's I mean, it's really honestly everywhere. Um, but I want to hone in on I think I think what are maybe the foundational ones in the Old Testament, and then what I'm what I'm going to hope to show is how Paul specifically pulls on on those stories and draws a, again a unique conclusion about the church, and we'll, we'll end there. Uh, so, what are these three stories that bring us the kind of familial language. Well, the first is, like most of these episodes, the first is Adam and Eve. Uh, it's the, the Genesis 1 story in which uh, human, that's Adam, life, that's Eve, that's literally what their names get translated to. So we have human and we have life, and human and life uh, are called into relationship with God. They're made in the image and the likeness of God. And they are commissioned by God to uh, have children, to be fruitful and to multiply. And obviously we know the story. Uh, they are deceived and they fall and they sin. And as, when God comes down and as he is confronting the serpent and speaking to them, uh, we get this, this prophetic word. We get this promise that from this woman... Um, from this woman, there will be a seed, and that seed will crush the head of the serpent. And yet the serpent will bruise its heel, but the seed will crush the head. And from that moment on, we are, the biblical authors are tracing uh, the seed. And this begins right away with, with uh, Cain and Abel. And they thought, it says at the end of the, that story in Genesis 4, that they thought Abel was that seed. And so when Cain kills him, they're crushed because they thought that Abel was the promised son that was coming, the promised seed that was coming. And then you get uh, an echo of that also in, in Seth. And then you just continue on through, and it's this story, not just through Genesis, through the whole Old Testament. And you see that strand continue to go all the way through the Old Testament. So the, the first story is this, this promise of a son, this promise of a family that is going to, to come. This familial language undergirds the whole story, that we have a, a primeval, a first mother and father, Adam and Eve, and from the mother is going to come this son. That's story number one. Story number two is the story of, of Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham has promised a son, and he uh, first tries to, and this is, you know, Genesis 12. So this is, uh, and the book of Genesis is really split into two major sections, Genesis 1 through 11, and then Genesis 12 through 50. So the second section opens with, again, tracing that same seed uh, promise as God is going to visit Abraham, and he's going to promise him a son and actually many sons but there's going to be a son that comes comes from from Abraham well Abraham obviously he eventually gets a little impatient and uh, he tries to accomplish this promise and bring forth this son uh, first on his own by abusing Hagar 
who's an Egyptian slave, and this obviously doesn't doesn't work. I mean, she gets pregnant and has a, a son, Ishmael, and uh, but that turns into all kind of further abuse, honestly, and neglect. Um, but God does visit Hagar and her son and uh, promise covenant to them. He's not going to be the son of promise, but he is he is given covenant with with God and and he God extends mercy to Hagar and to to Ishmael. And then eventually Abraham, we know the story, has another son by Sarah. This Isaac, he he's the son, he's the son of promise. So Abraham has two sons. Both are sons of covenant, but only one is the son of promise and that that is Isaac. Well, you fast forward in the story, and this brings us to story number three. So we have Adam and Eve, we have Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, all as one. And then you you just keep going, and you end up in story number three, which is the story of the Exodus. Now it's Isaac's seed, who because of drought, they are going to go back to Hagar's land into Egypt. And they're going to become slaves. So now the seed of the promised son is going to become a slave of Hagar's descendants. So the roles are essentially reversed, right? First, it's, it's Abraham is holding this slave Hagar, and he abuses her and her son. And now it's going to be flipped, right? It's going to be uh, Isaac's descendants. They're going to go under the rule of the Egyptians. And so when God wants to call them out and bring them out of bondage, uh, and he begins to call Moses, he commissions Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh. And this is what, um, in Exodus 4, what, what he's supposed to say, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go because Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go so that he can come and serve me on my holy mountain. And this is the title given to, to Israel. They are the son. They're the firstborn son. And so everything from here on forward in the biblical narrative, I think, is pulling on these three stories. Everything that the prophets and the poets write after this are echoing these foundational stories. God's promise to Adam and Eve as our first parents Abraham's two sons, and particularly the son of promise, but there's both of those sons play a, a key role in the whole the whole story, and then God's calling to Israel as His firstborn son, and you get the prophets continuing this imagery all throughout. Hosea comes to my mind right away, in I think it's uh, chapter twelve, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head. It's 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, where God is pictured as this father and Israel is his firstborn son who's learning to walk and God is holding Israel by the hands as he's teaching Israel, his son, how to walk. It's just, I mean, it's just it's parental, familial imagery. And so when we say that we are Christians and that we are the church, as sons of God, we're making at least a few claims. These, this is just from these three stories, basic observations from these three stories. First, it's that we've been brought into God's promised family 
through Christ, who is the true seed of Adam, who crushed the head of the serpent. So he's, Paul calls Jesus the new Adam, the second Adam. So we have our first parents, and then we have Christ, who is our brother, but he's also the second Adam from which we come. And he's not only the second Adam, he himself is the seed of Eve that was promised, of Adam and Eve that was promised. And so we are brought into that story, and we're brought into that victory and into that inheritance. Secondly, we're, we're claiming that we are partakers of the promise and inheritance of Abraham through Jesus Christ, who is also the true seed of Abraham. And this is largely the, the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, that Christ is the true seed of Abraham, that when God promised his uh, a son to Abraham and a seed to Abraham, he was promising him Christ. And when Abraham put his faith in that God, he was putting his faith in Christ who was to come through him. And thirdly, what we're claiming when we say that we are, as Christians individually and as the church collectively, that to be a son means that we are an Exodus people, that we, like Israel, that we've been delivered out of the bondage of every pharaoh of sin and death and the principalities and powers, and we've been delivered not by our own hand, but by the hand of God, that to be a son is not just some familial relationship. It also means that we have been delivered, that we are the delivered people by the hand of our Father, that He's come and saved us and rescued us and conquered every enemy of ours, most uh, notably sin and death. And so all these things get wrapped up in the familial language. When the prophets and the psalmists and the poets want to talk about God as the, this father, even God as this mother, us as sons and daughters, and all kinds of ways that this language gets used, from the Song of Solomon to Isaiah, uh, to prophets like Hosea, to Jeremiah, who use wedding language. All of these things are facets of this same diamond, this same uh, gemstone that is talking about our relationship to God in these familial terms. Well, when we get to the New Testament, particularly to, and this is where I want to, la- to, to land here, when we get to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul actually takes up two of these stories, and really you can't take up two without taking up the third, but explicitly he takes up two. He he takes up the the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. That was our second story. And the story of of the Exodus. And what Paul does here in his reading is super, super fascinating. I actually think it's a really interesting test case for when we think about how the, the apostles read the scriptures what we would call the Old Testament, they would just call the Scriptures, how they read the Scriptures. Because here we have an explicit example, a lengthy one. You know, it's half of a chapter where Paul is directly dialoguing with stories and and foundational stories in the Scriptures. And so Paul retells these stories, these two stories, by... Really, the only way you can describe it is by smashing them together. 
This is in Galatians 4. And he retells the story this way. Uh, He retells the story of Abraham to say that the son that came from Hagar, that was Ishmael, that he's the son of the bondwoman because she was a slave. And that son and that bondwoman, they correspond to the law that came on Sinai. Now, right here, notice how he's messing with time. Paul says that Hagar and her children, those that are in bondage, they come out of Sinai. They come from Sinai, which is Jerusalem. He shorthand for Jerusalem. Those who are living under the law, the, the Jewish people who are still living under the covenant of Moses, he just shorthand writes that as Jerusalem. But again, look at the, the order. It's Hagar and her children that come out of Sinai. So he flips even time. And even in his, his exposition here, he says, I'm going to retell this story, but these things are symbolic. He's doing what we would call today an allegorical reading. He's reading these stories allegorically, which probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but this, I, this is what Paul is doing. And so he says, yeah, the, the Hagar and the bondwoman, this corresponds to those who live under the law of Moses, who come out from uh, Mount Sinai and are still in bondage to this day. They're still under the law to this day. They're still bound to this day. And so Sinai, he says, is like a mother that gives birth to children of bondage. And those children, again, are those Israelites who are still living under that law, which he just writes shorthand of Jerusalem. His shorthand for all of that is Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But Sinai is this mother of bondage. But remember, Abraham had two sons, and so Paul continues the story and he knows his scriptures well. Abraham doesn't just have uh, Ishmael via Hagar. He has Isaac via Sarah. And so the other son of promise is given by God to the free woman. That's Sarah. And she, she is the Jerusalem from above. So now he's, he's playing off of this idea of Jerusalem. So there's Jerusalem on the earth. There's the Jerusalem of bondage, the Jerusalem that comes from Sinai, the Jerusalem that is Hagar in the story. And then there is this Jerusalem from above. And she is, and I quote, the mother of us all. And this is the church. So through his allegorical reading, Paul brings us to this definition, this image of the church, that the church is a mother, that the church is a mother, and not only a mother, the church is the mother of us all. And this language doesn't get explicitly used anywhere else. There are hints and allusions at it in places like Hebrews 12, where it talks about, uh, it again corresponds the mountain of Sinai with this other general assembly and this other mountain, and we kind of get similar 
uh, comparing and contrasting going on there. You get Revelation 12, where there's this woman who uh, John uh, is having this vision, and this woman has 12 stars, and the sun and the moon are over her, and she gives birth to a son. And over the history of interpretation, some people have said uh, that that is... Uh, the church. Other people have said that that's not faithful Israel. Some people have said that's Mary. Some people have said that's Eve. But if you notice among all of them, Mary is a mother. Eve is literally a mother. The church, Paul here calls a mother. Uh, and Israel in the Old Testament is referred to as a mother. And the story is about this woman giving birth. So she is a mother, right? So it's, there's even some overlap there, whichever place that you would land on but so but this is the only this is the only place in the new testament where the church is given this title that the church is the mother of us all i want to read to you um, two quotes from uh, two church fathers that picked up on this and um, that i find fascinating they're saying uh, essentially the same thing, but I, I want to, to read them both. The, the first is by a, a man named St. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, and he says this. This is in his treatise on the unity of the church. He's basically coming against these divisions, which is also what Paul was doing uh, in the, the book of Galatians, these divisions that were coming into the church. And so he, Cyprian is writing similar thing, these divisions that are coming in the church. And he says this, she, talking about the church, she broadly expands her rivers, liberally flowing, yet her head is one, her source is one, and she is one mother, plentiful in the results of her fruitfulness. From her womb we are born, and by her milk we are nourished, and by her spirit we are animated. And then he continues. He can no longer, he being a, a Christian, he can no longer have God for his father who, is not, who has not have the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the ark of Noah, then he also may escape who shall be outside of the church. We are the fruitful, the, the, the fruitfulness of the, the church who is our mother. We come from her womb, he says. We are nourished by her milk, and we are animated by her spirit. Now, the second is much shorter, and it's uh, from St. Augustine. And he simply says this, No one can have God as a father who does not have the church as his mother. And I think this is a critical image that really often gets overlooked in, uh, in the lives of many people today. Because many of us have this idea, and I, I don't honestly quite understand where it came from or where we got it, um, I have some general guesses, but I don't know the history and the history enough uh, well enough. And that's this we, this idea that it's 
me and Jesus and me and the Bible, me and the Holy Spirit. And the church is, I don't think we would say optional. I don't think most people would would say it. But the church sometimes is an inconvenience. It's a second fiddle. It's not a priority. Uh, the definition of church sometimes gets changed just to mean those people that you have community with. And so, you know, people who maybe are running together very close, you know, they all love Jesus. They say, well, you know, we meet and we worship and someone shares and that's our church. And kind of completely neglecting what we have for 2,000 years of history of what it means to be the church and the sacraments and bishops and ordination and pastors and elders and membership and baptism and the Eucharist and everything else that actually makes up a church and discipline and polity and all of these things that actually uh, scripturally make up a church. And it just becomes kind of this, church becomes kind of this facsimile for people you're in community with. But it's this like second layered thing, this second tier thing. It's not the primary. What's primary is uh, me and Jesus, me and the Father. And you'll hear even one of the the most popular messages that you can hear uh, today is people talking about God is the Father and therefore you are not an orphan. And tons of I mean, honestly, really, really good messages that I've heard over the years um, about God being the Father, and therefore you are not orphaned, you are not abandoned, you have identity, you have, uh, you've been adopted, you have a, a place of belonging, you have a place of inheritance, you've been given all of these things from your Father who's named you, and all of these things, and all of this language and gets pulled in this metaphor of God being a father and, and us being like his sons and daughters gets really beautifully um, extrapolated and expanded and whatever. But there is something missing in all of that. I've literally, I've never heard it. In all of those talks about God being a father, we being his sons, and therefore we're not orphans, I've never heard anyone say, say this, that in order for someone to be an orphan, you have to be missing both parents. Meaning, you have to be missing your father and your mother. And as children of God, we have two parents. We have God as our father, and we have the church as our mother. And what I would want to say here, and what Paul, I think, is saying here, and what the New Testament is emphatically saying, and what Cyprian and Augustine are clearly, plainly, and boldly saying is that you cannot claim to have God as your father if the church is not your mother. It is through her that we are nourished. It is through her that we are born. It is through her that we are grown up and taught. It is through her discipleship that we are brought into maturity. To borrow even a phrase from from Paul in Ephesians that it's through the church altogether that we grow up, that we mature, that we become like adults into the head Christ Jesus. That all happens in the context of 
the church, because she is our mother. We are not orphans, not just because God is our father, but also because the church is our mother. And we cannot have a relationship with the church that places her as second fiddle, that places her as something, again, I don't think most people would say strongly that she's optional, but she's not as important. She's the forgotten one. Again, in all of my messages that I've ever heard about the orphan spirit and adoption and sons and identity and whatever, I've, I've never ever heard anyone actually mention the church as our mother, that the church is the place of belonging, that the father has a bride, that, uh, so, I mean, Christ has the bride, but the father has a, 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 a spouse in the sense that he's a father and she's the mother, and they together, through the Spirit, have given birth to children, to many children first to Christ as the firstborn of many, and also to all of the church, that the church is our mother. And for Paul, when he continues to go on in, in Galatians and in ch- into chapter 5 and 6, when he begins to talk about freedom, freedom is in context to being born of the, from the mother of the free woman. Freedom only happens in context of the church. Freedom is not only found in Christ. Freedom is found in the church through Christ, because of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ. But freedom is found through and in the church because the church is the mother of us all, and she is the free woman that has given birth to free children. And so our freedom is not just this thing that Jesus has given us. It's actually the thing that the church has given us. And we can only live in freedom when we live in the church, when we give ourselves to the church, when we give all of ourselves to the church. And so I'm going to end here with a plea, a plea from a pastor, that every one of you listening, that you would live in the family of God with with your father and your mother, that this is the household of faith, to borrow another phrase of Paul, this is the household of faith. The household of faith is not a single parent home. Mom has not abandoned us. And especially those of us, which is probably just about everybody listening, who come from the Protestant tradition, who essentially, this is a gross oversimplification, I understand, but there's some truth in it that we essentially in the Protestant Reformation have said, we want the Father and Jesus, and we don't want very much to do with the mother. We want us and our Bible, sola scriptura. We want us and our own personal faith, sola fidide. This is what we want. But what I would, I would, I would plead every one of you listening to this now is to see the church not just as second fiddle, but as your mother, the one from whom you were born, the one that nourishes you, is 
responsible for helping you grow and is the source of your freedom and life, that the very life that you believe the Father has given you through Jesus, that that is found in the church because she is the mother of us all. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was encouraging for you. I hope you have a wonderful time this Sunday as you gather and worship and even as you walk into uh, your church building and service and among the people that you worship with regularly. I hope even this week that your heart comes alive in a new way, that your eyes are opened in a new way, that you appreciate it in a new way. And uh, I hope that is just a blessing to you and strengthens your faith. Uh, if you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button, and uh, we'll have a, I'll have a couple more of these reflections on images of the church coming shortly. And so uh, if you want to get those directly to your phone, make sure you hit the subscribe button. And with that, I will see you again next time.